Take your Bible and turn to Job 36. Job chapter 36. Really, the sermon is all of 32 through 37, but we'll be reading chapter 36, so I'll be preaching the whole thing. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty. God does not despise any. He's mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. If they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve Him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth. And their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who is prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it, and man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great. And we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist and rain, which skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. 
It's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, thank you that you have spoken already. In the reading of your scriptures, we now ask that you would speak in the preaching. Give us light in our hearts for understanding, we pray. In Christ, by the Spirit, Amen. Uh, I think it's probably every generation's duty to be wonderfully bored at their parents' entertainments. The TV shows that mom and dad like, I think it's probably in some way the obligation, the duty of the children to not find them quite as interesting. The books that mom and dad like, the music that mom and dad like, the things that mom and dad like, I think it's probably okay. I do, however, remember from my childhood, that was certainly true for me, one of the very few things that I remember even as a kid uh, thinking was extremely and just wonderfully interesting. And little did I know how much it would equip me for life. Two words, Paul Harvey. I got the chuckle from some in the room that know who he is. I assumed many would, and I assumed many would not, knowing the age of this church. Paul Harvey was a famous radio host. He would do a story on the radio and did it for, I don't know, 60 years, I think. Had a great voice. But his great skill, and kids, this is particularly most important to you, I guess, his great skill was he could tell a wonderful story. And he could tell you the story and and get the hook set. And you think, oh, man, that's so fascinating. And then he'd pause. And everybody older in the room knows what he would say, right? And now the rest of the story. And you'd find out that whatever the story he just told you, it was flipped upside down and there was some major plot twist or some interesting kind of quirk to the story of, oh, no, the dog was actually from California. And it would become the most interesting story ever. As a kid, it was marvelous, though, because it it taught me that life lesson early on that there's always additional information that you don't have. There's always, and if we were going to maybe uh, take a good life lesson today, just actually, in fact, I'll just interrupt myself and say, uh, good life lesson, particularly kiddos, learning with social media. Don't respond until you see the second camera angle. Right? There's always the second camera angle. Wait till you see the second camera angle. Whatever the media is going to present to you is going to make it look one way, but there's always a rest of the story. It's hard to tell a story well and balance and fullness and to capture all of it. In fact, actually, that's the challenge that we run into here with Elihu. This book of Job is marvelous as it tells this fascinating tale of a man who, by no fault of his own, is subjected to great persecution and displays, by and large, great godliness. His opening response to losing his children, to losing his wealth, to losing his health, uh, are two of the most beautiful sentences in, in all of Scripture. I mean, his responses to this terrible thing. Again, he loses 10 kids in a moment. And his responses are, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And then his friends show up, and again, acknowledging, if we want to be fair to them, these are not bad friends. These are friends, actually, that are are, are so special and such good friends, they actually get to be part of the conversation with God at the end of the book. The Lord engages them directly. The unfortunate part to their friendship is that their counsel is rotten. (laughs) They stick with him. They uh, seem to at least in some way love him, but uh, they're overly precise and they don't engage him with any form of real charity. Saying, Job, we know why you suffer. You suffer because of your sin. You're a bad man. You deserve what you have gotten. Well, Job obviously hasn't agreed. He's uh, claimed blamelessness the whole way through. In fact, even in last week's sermon, the previous section here, uh, he's given his kind of final speech explaining, look, I'm, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. I haven't earned this difficulty. There's no secret sin that needs to be confessed. And here in these chapters, 32 through 37, we have Elihu. Elihu is a complicated figure. In fact, actually, commentators struggle to deal with him, and depending on which study Bible you're reading, I didn't check them all. I I know some of them are going to take a very negative read on him. Some of them might take a little bit more positive. We're going to see he's kind of a mixed bag, honestly. Elihu is the youngest of all of the friends, and out of good deference to uh, those who are older and perhaps wiser, he has sat in silence. He's not responded, he's not talked back, and so he's given um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar a chance to engage with Job, but that has broken down, even to the point of name-calling, calling each other windbags and things like that, until... It's like it's almost like they took a pause to breathe, you know, to breathe and hear Elihu jumps in. And he's a character, we could say. His opening salvo in verse or chapter 32 is in essence an explanation for why he gets to talk now and why you need to listen. It's my turn. I get to talk now. It's my turn. And if you were to look in verse 17, this gives you a little bit of the tone of this guy. You can tell he's young even by what he says and not even by identifying that he is young. He says, I will answer with my share. It's my turn to talk. I will also declare my opinion for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. And when you make wine, you put you know, grape juice into uh, some sort of container. Usually they would use wineskins. You cap it, and as it ferments, it produces lots and lots of gas, which is why you needed a new wineskin so that it could fill up. And then as the gas was then kind of reabsorbed, it could get back shrunk together. He's in essence saying, look, I've been listening to you windbags talk, and as it's done, it's just boiled in my stomach. And now I've got so many words inside me. It's time for all you clowns to stop talking and to start listening. It's my turn. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Oh, boy. Explains to them all that he's angry with them. He's angry with the friends. Their counsel is bad. He's angry with Job. Job's responses are bad. He's a young man full of all the vim and vigor that we might 
expect. The reason why Elihu is complicated, though, is that he does put forth a different argument than all the other guys have given. All of the other guys, in some form or fashion, have looked at the circumstances, the events, and tried to extrapolate God's mind. They have, in some fashion, said, Job, we look at the bad things that have happened... And because we see the bad things that have happened, we can tell God is angry. We look at the bad things that have happened and we can tell God is mad with you or God is displeased with you or you have sin. That is your problem. It's a, it's a reading of the tea leaves, so to speak. They're looking at the circumstances and then extrapolating. Elihu does something a little bit different. He brings for them a a greater theology. In fact, one of the great guys in the PCA is called, it's big God theology. We would refer to his understanding as being much more kind of almost even Calvinistic in his approach of this just tremendously great and grand sovereign God. Whereas the other three have been evaluating circumstances only, Elihu responds with God's character. And as a pastor, my immediate response to that is, yes, finally! This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the response we've been waiting for all along. Rather than looking at Job's suffering and finding meaning, Elihu wants to look at God's character and find meaning and praise God. Yay, we have the right answer. I mean, how many sermons, don't answer this one, how many sermons have I had the same application? Go look at the promises of God. He tells you how to feel about your suffering and your events. Elihu does that in some sense where he takes Job and the friends to consider the greatness of God's character. The problem with Elihu is that he brings them to consider the greatness of God's character with only one camera angle. He misses the rest of the story. If you were to look at chapter 34 and to go through all the parts and pieces to it, which we don't have time to do, it would be a two-hour sermon. And while I would enjoy that, I suspect most of you would not. Certainly the second service would have issue. Chapter 34, he goes and explains uh, to Job and to the friends the greatness of God's justice. ESV has it helpfully titled for you, right? Elihu asserts God's justice. Let's consider the grand and marvelous just God. Holding forth for him uh, this explanation of God's character. In fact, actually, if you were to look at the flow of the chapter, verses 5 through 9, he kind of recaptures, re-explains Job's arguments And then he answers it in three pieces. Verses 10 through 15, he explains the unchanging character of God. Verses 16 through 20, he explains God's sovereign justice. And 21 through 30, he explains God's punishment to the evildoer. Here is our God. Our God is a just God. 
a righteous God, a true God. He is the God of justice, and His justice can never be broken. And therefore, Job, because we see you receiving punishment of a sort, we know it's your fault. Our God is a just God, and therefore, when people suffer, we know it's their fault. You see, what he's done here is he's gotten the the first premise correct. He's gotten the conclusion tragically wrong. Because you see, what Elihu is doing is he's, he's filtering Job's situation only through one aspect of the character of God. Through God's justice. Well, what is he not doing? Well, he he, he leaves no room, no category for mercy. And this is the marvelous uh, reality of who God is. is, uh, God is not like us. I I joke about it when I'm talking to people. Which hat am I wearing? Am I wearing the Michael's a pastor hat? Did I take that off? And Michael is a a husband or a parent hat? What function am I serving? One or the other. God is all things all at once. He, he is all of himself all at once. Meaning there's, there's never a time where God is not love. He is love. He can't change that. There is never a time that God is not kind. He is kindness. There is never a time God is not holy. He is holiness. There is never a time he is not just. He is justice. There is never a time he's not angry. He is holy wrath. What Elihu is doing is he's processing Job's situation through God's justice, but forgetting that God is both just and merciful at the exact same time. So when he goes to draw the conclusion, he says, well, look, God is just, and he only punishes the wicked, he punishes the evildoer. Therefore... Look in verse 12 of chapter 34. (laughs) Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. (laughs) Therefore, your suffering, we know he's been just. We know, Job, that you're the problem in the situation because we know God is perfect and righteous. Now, I would suggest that for many of us, this is perhaps one of the great dangers that we have in the Reformed camp, where we, uh, I would say, praise God and happily and thankfully so, have been taught or, or work hard to ingest this good and right and true and biblical doctrine of the big, the great God. As Lig Duncan calls it, big God theology. There is, however, a danger that we follow in Elihu's path and trying to capture that big God theology where we cease to be consistent or cease to be pastoral in how we interact with our friends. And we become this terrible, terrible thing called a theological jerk. That's why uh, within, I don't know, maybe the last 20 years or so, there's this, been a long-running joke amongst Calvinists that after a person kind of begins to understand the doctrines of grace and Calvinism, they kind of be, need to be locked away from public for a couple of years while they sort out how to remember how to be nice again. 
There's an aspect of that. that's exactly what Elihu's doing. He's, he's holding forth this big God and then immediately blaming Job because our God cannot be unjust. And we would agree with that. We would disagree with the application. Chapter 34, he deals with God's justice. And chapter 35, he deals with God's righteousness. God is righteous. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate the unrighteous. And therefore, the fact that he does not tolerate Job is a sign of Job's unrighteousness. Verse 8 highlights it. Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself. Well, there you have it. Our God is a holy God. He's a, he's a righteous God. And in fact, he's so far apart from, from normal life. He's so different. He's so holy. Even so far as he, he mischaracterizes Job's argument here in answering the question, what good is it if I hadn't sinned? What, what, what good is righteousness? What good is holiness? In fact, in verses 9 through 15, Elihu hints even, it sounds like a it's not entirely clear how, whole, how firmly he holds this view, but it, it hints that he even thinks perhaps that our God is so righteous that he's so separated from people that it, it's almost like he's detached. It's almost like God is stoic with how he deals with the world, that he's so holy that he's removed, that he's, he's different, that he is aloof. Whereas in 34, he highlights God's justice without mercy. Here he highlights God's righteousness. Without his, his hearing, without his understanding, without his listening to his people. 9 through 15 highlight a God who is detached from human woe, one who does not hear. And again, we would say, is God righteous? Yes, yes, yes. Is he the big, great God who is big and great in his righteousness? Yes. But does that prevent him from listening to his people? No. No, not at all. I mean, that's an essence part of Elihu's argument here. So, well, how do we know, Job, that you're unrighteous? Well, God is righteous, and he's not listening to you. Thirty-six is really kind of the turning point in his argument here. And this is 36 and 37 are the parts that give commentators the biggest fits. And why some folks even take a very positive reading of Elihu is that here he, he lays out some very lovely theology on how great God is. I would contend it's incomplete, but it's very great. And when we read this and some of it, you, I mean, again, you, I personally think that Elihu's that kind of smug young man that sometimes is quite right, but you'd really like to rub his nose in it every time he's wrong because he's such just unpleasant in his temperament. We got that in in verses 3 and 4, right? Truly, my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you in verse 4. 
Yeah, it's the kind of guy that every time he's wrong, we love to rub his nose in it, right? Ugh, know-it-all. Can't handle know-it-alls. Verses 5 through 15, though, here he, he goes to lay out God's power. He, he explains that, look, this is how great our God is. He's, he's mighty. He does not despise any. He's mighty in strength and understanding. He, he is sovereign in control over all of the world. What he presents here is, is not a God who's sitting back twiddling his thumb saying, well, golly gee, I hope my people are nice to me. What he presents here is a God who is in charge, who is proactive, who is accomplishing what he wishes. Look at verse 6. God does not keep the wicked alive. He gives the afflicted their right. He, he is in charge of what he's doing. He's not passive. He's not, uh, oh no, what do I do? He, he's on it. Verses 5 through 15, he highlights, look, this God is so powerful that he gives retribution to the good and to the bad. Verses 8 and 9 highlight, look, if they're bound in chains, if they're caught in the cords of affliction, it's because God declares to them their work. He declares to them their transgressions, that they have been behaving arrogantly. He is the one who does everything. Look, if these people, verse 12, if they do not listen to their God, if they do not listen to their maker, they will perish by the sword. They will die without knowledge. It's not up for negotiation. This is the big God. This is the one who is in charge. But it's intriguing how he's, he's missed here that God is close. Using the, the fancy theological words, the 75-cent theological words, he's got the transcendence of God, the bigness. He's missed the imminence, the closeness. In fact, even going so far in verses 16 through 21, kind of highlighting, look, this is God's retribution to Job. This is what you get, man. <laughs> Verse 18, beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. Look, you're mad at God. You've scoffed him. You made fun of him. Now it's going to get you. It's your own fault. He's missed the closeness of God. And intriguingly, in verse 24, um, well, 22 really, but into 24 where the ESV breaks it, and then further into chapter 37, it, it's almost like the introduction to God's speech in 38 through the end of the chapter. It's the introduction to God's explanation of his greatness. And intriguing, if we're going to look at kind of another characteristic, in, in uh, 37, he, he holds forth the greatness of God and his wisdom. But then immediately is intriguing, says, well, but we have to understand that wisdom. God's wisdom fits within the confine of man's wisdom. And, and if you don't understand, he doesn't have a category for God's patience, for God working in a way that he doesn't understand. It's intriguing. What, what Elihu does is marvelous. He comes bringing theology to Job, which is good. Theology is the best answer always. Uh, he holds forth even better than that big God theology, highlighting how great our God is, which again, praise the Lord. What a wonderful truth. But the problem is that it's incomplete. 
He's, he's missing the second camera angle, the one that highlights the rest of the character of God. He's missed that God is a God of mercy. He's missed that God listens to His people. He's missed that God is close to His people. He's missed that God is patient and long-suffering. And you think, well, I mean, okay, it's hard to be balanced all of the time. You're talking to a guy who just lost 10 kids, his health, and everything he owns. You would think you would want to highlight that he's a merciful God. You would think that you would want to highlight that there is one who sticks closer than a brother and that God is with you. You would think you would want to highlight that God listens even when you don't understand how? I would lovingly suggest this is a great danger for us. There is certainly the danger that we follow the path of Elihu. Honestly, I suspect it's probably sometimes even more of a danger than the other three because of our theological tradition. There is the danger that we would use God's character to answer our uh, questions and concerns and problems, but not be balanced and, and thoughtful and whole in dealing with his character. Now, there's two primary ways that I think we tend to see this play out in our current uh, kind of church situation. One, and I would suggest the, the lesser of the common answers, is where we do highlight the big God theology. And it ends up producing, when done improperly, I think, hear me say, we want big God theology. Right? This is good. We want that. I mean, small God theology is not really good theology. It's not biblical. But the, the misuse of it, one of them is to say, look, God is sovereign over everything, so I'm just going to throw my hands up. Look, God's in charge of everything, so I'm just not going to try. He's the one that's got to do it, so I'm just not going to you know, spend any energy. I, I'm just not, yeah, I just throw my hands up. You know, the case, sera, sera. You know, whatever it'll be, it'll be. It's, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm just not going to worry about it. Well, guess what? That's not the right answer. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he's great. Yes, he's marvelous. Yes, he's big. Yes, he's just and righteous and filled with all power. And he's told you that he's going to use your efforts, your actions, your prayers, and your desires to do marvelous things. I mean, think about, go back and read the Gospels and think about how Jesus even speaks to his disciples about their faith. <laughs> Your faith will be used to move mountains, to do, accomplish amazing things. Surely you're going to see greater things than even the miracles that Jesus is doing in their midst. This idea of God's sovereignty that produces a kind of, I'll throw my hands up and just not try... I'll just patiently wait and see he'll have to do it. Well, that's wrong theology. Well, the Lord's going to draw his people to himself. I just can't wait to see him do it. No! Go work at it. Bring him in. Right? Go find, search the highways and the hedges. Find his people. Bring them in. Well, I don't like this situation. It hurts, you know, whatever. I'm sad. Uh, God's sovereign. He'll just do whatever. Brothers and sisters, the longest book in the Bible is filled with psalms crying out to God saying, my heart breaks over this situation. Please, would you fix it? 
simple. To think that God's greatness somehow just makes him so far removed from his people that he no longer listens. That he no longer includes uh, their desires and their prayers in his perfect plan. You know what that is? I mean, I'm going to be a, a little bit crass. That's the God of a different religion who's powerful but not loving. That's not the God who sends his son inside time and space to become man for all eternity, to suffer on a cross, to die, to be raised, to be restored for his people. That's one imbalance, that danger of just kind of, well, okay, God will have to do it all. I suspect that's actually, honestly, in America today, that, that's the far less common response. Because in order to do that, you have to have a big view of God. And realistically, right now, I would suggest in the American church, we have too big of a view of ourselves to really have a big view of God. And more likely, what we're doing is actually the opposite of what Elihu's saying. Elihu is suggesting that God is so big that he's kind of not able to be close. Uh, I, I would suggest probably more American Christian types, even PCA types. We emphasize God's closeness so much that, that we forget that he is big. You'll hear things like, well, God loves you so much that that command doesn't really matter this time. I'm sure he won't mind. Well, he's God. Fairly certain he always minds. I mean, I don't mind sometimes with things because I'm just too tired, but that's my frailty. That's not his. In fact, actually, I think we've probably brought a God that's so close, uh, we've, we've tried to make him into our own image. We've tried to create a God in our own minds that fits like a member of this church uh, instead of the Lord of the church. We're probably the ones emphasizing uh, his closeness and emphasizing how he listens to his people and emphasizing his mercy even to the point that we've maybe sometimes even forgotten the opposites. He is a big God. Nothing frustrates his perfect plan. He does all things well in justice and mercy and righteousness. And again, to think about how... I mean... You don't believe me on this one that this is the the nature of the church today. I, I would just simply say, think about your own heart, your own emotional response to the doctrine of hell. You don't believe that we overemphasize the closeness of God. The doctrine of hell for most of us is so foreign because we don't have a category for God's righteousness anymore. It's hard for us to contemplate that God will send people to hell because they deserve it. That's where they should go. Oh, I can't believe you're saying that, Michael. Here's the reason to me why this is so incredibly important. Is that when we, when we push ourselves out of balance on one of these two extremes, where God is either so big that he's, he's aloof, or he's either so close that uh, he's just like me, that we, we've, we lose that balance. What we lose there is the wonderful, beautiful understanding of the Trinitarian God. And in doing so, we lose the heart of the gospel. That God the Father... <laughs> who is all might and all power and all glory and all justice and all righteousness, who, 
every right probably should have just and just incinerated all of humanity. Instead chose to send his son inside to become man. Ah, Mind-blowing. And then the son, while he was here on earth, would say, it's better that I go away and I'm going to send someone even better for you. You're going to have the third person of the Trinity who will remain not just external to you, but will reside internal to you. So this great and mighty God who is all justice and all greatness and all grandeur will also reside within you. You see, the marvel, the real marvel in in God's word comes when we understand both of those points at the same time. The greatness of our God and the closeness at the exact same time. I suspect this is also partially why covenant theology has in some ways fallen by the wayside because the heart of covenant theology is the great God is condescending, he's stepping low to make an agreement with his people to send his son to them. And I would contend there's probably one other complication, one other, I mean, there's many other uh, results from this, but one other I'd like to highlight now. It's the same one I've been highlighting for about seven weeks now. It takes the punch out of the promises of God when you've neglected one of the extremes as to how big he is or how close he is. Because when you read his promises, you will either really in your heart of hearts, deep in your soul, either doubt that he's powerful enough to accomplish it or doubt that he loves you enough to actually mean it. So when he says, I'll never let your foot be moved, you're like, well, that can't be true. Or when he says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Well, (laughs) except for this situation. Or when he says that he's going to create for himself a holy people and change us. Well, maybe. And instead, we do what so often is common today in the media and in social media and in many Americans' lives. We like to cling to one camera angle and make it our entirety of our world. Instead of attempting to be balanced like the Bible is balanced. Seeing the fullness of the character of God and the fullness of his promises. May it be that the imbalances that we have, God would correct. And you know the only way to correct that, right? Well, there's two ways. (laughs) One is suffering. It's not my favorite way. So I prefer the other way, which is Bible study. (laughs) I would much rather listen to the promises I've told you. I've been very upfront about that. I am a coward when it comes to learning the hard way. I would much rather learn the easy way to go to the Bible and take God at his word for what he says. Let's thank God that he is both big and close even now. Lord, we love you. We love your word and thank you that it is balanced. (laughs) How Lehu is both right and wrong at the same time. (laughs) There is one here who is perfect in knowledge, but it's not him. (laughs) It's you. And we thank you that we have your word and we ask, O God, that you would correct our minds, that we might think of you accurately and believe in you wholeheartedly for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.